Part Three, Chapter Eleven of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. On the following day, the sovereign remained in Vizchow. His body physician Villiers was several times called to see him, and not only at headquarters but in the various corps. The report was spread abroad that the emperor was ill. He had eaten nothing that day and had slept badly the night before so those who were in his councils reported. This indisposition proceeded from the powerful impression produced upon his sensitive soul by the sight of the wounded and the killed. At daybreak, on the twenty-ninth, a French officer with a flag of truce passed the sentinels and was brought into Vischau demanding a personal interview with the Russian emperor. This officer was Savre. The sovereign had just fallen asleep, and therefore Savre was obliged to wait. At noon he was admitted into the emperor's presence, and at the end of an hour came out and rode, accompanied by Prince Dolgulukov, back to the pickets of the French army. It was soon reported that the purpose of Sevres' mission was a proposal for a meeting of the emperor with Napoleon. This personal meeting was refused, much to the gratification and delight of the whole army, and in the sovereign's place Prince Dolgorukov the conqueror of Vizjau was delegated to confer with Napoleon, if contrary to anticipation he should express a genuine desire for peace. In the evening Dolgorukov returned, went directly to the sovereign, and was closeted a long time with him alone. On the 30th of November and the 1st of December the armies moved forward two more stages, and the advanced pickets of the army, after slight skirmishes, retired. Before noon of December 1st, there began in the upper circles of the army a vigorous stirring and exciting movement, which continued until the morning of the 2nd of December, when was fought the world-renowned battle of Austerlitz. Up till the afternoon of the 1st, the movement, the excited conversations, the galloping about and carrying of messages, was confined to the headquarters of the two emperors. In the afternoon of the same day, the excitement was communicated to Kutuzov's headquarters, and to the staffs and the division commanders. By evening, this movement had spread by means of the adjutants to all the remotest portions of the army, and during the night that followed the 1st of December, the enormous mass of 80,000 men, comprising the allied armies, arose from their bouviacs with a hum of voices, and stirred and wavered like a mighty fabric ten versts in length. The concentrated movement, beginning in the morning at the headquarters of the emperors, and finally giving its impulse to the whole, even to the remotest parts, was analogous to the first movement of the central wheel of a great tower clock. The one wheel moves slowly, it starts another, a third, and ever more and more swiftly the wheels, pulleys, pinions begin to revolve, the chimes of bells to play, the figures to go through their evolutions, the hands to move in measured time, showing the results of the motions. As in the mechanism of the clock, so in the mechanism of this military movement, no less irresistibly they move even to the last resultant, when once the impulse is given, and just as impassably immovable, up to the moment when the movement is started, are the parts of the mechanisms as yet unstirred by their work. The wheels whiz on their axles, the cogs catch, the revolving sheaves hiss in their rapid motion, but the next wheel is as yet as calm and immovable as though it had before it a century to remain in immobility. 
and then its movement comes, the cog has caught, and becoming subject to the motion of the wheel begins to whir as it revolves and takes part in an activity, the results and aim of which are incomprehensible to it. Just as in the clock, the result of the complicated motions of numberless and different wheels and pulleys is merely to move the hands slowly and in measured rhythm so as to tell the time, so the results of all the complicated human motions of these one hundred and sixty thousand Russians and French, all the passions, desires, regrets, humiliations, sufferings, transports of pride, panic, enthusiasms of all of these men, was merely the loss of the Battle of Austerlitz, called the Battle of the Three Emperors. In other words, the measured forward motion of the hand of universal history on the dial of humanity. Prince André was on duty this day, and constantly by the side of the commander-in-chief. About six o'clock in the evening, Kutuzov came to the headquarters of the emperors, and after a short audience with his sovereign, went to see Count Tolstoy, the Oberhofmarschall, master of supplies. Bolkonsky took advantage of this time to run into Dogorokov's to find out about the impending engagement. Prince André felt that Kutuzov was dissatisfied and out of sorts for some reason or another and that he was out of favor at headquarters, and that all whom he had met at the emperor's headquarters behaved toward him like men who know more than others know, and it was for this reason that he was anxious for a talk with Dolgorukov. "'Well, how are you, mon cher?' exclaimed Dolgorukov, who was drinking tea with Bilibin. "'The celebration comes to-morrow. What's the matter with your old man? He seems out of sorts?' "'I should not say that he was out of sorts,' but I think that he would like to have been listened to. Well, he was listened to at the Council of War, and he will be when he is willing to talk business, but to be temporizing and waiting for something now that Bonaparte fears a general engagement more than anything else is impossible. And so you've seen him, have you? asked Prince André. Well, what sort of man is this Bonaparte? What impression did he produce upon you? Yes, I have seen him, and I am convinced that he is more afraid of a general engagement than of anything else in the world, replied Dolgorukov, evidently laying great store by this general conclusion drawn from his interview with Napoleon. If he were not afraid of a general battle, why should he have demanded this interview, and entered into negotiations, and above all retreated, when retreating is contrary to his entire method of carrying on war? Believe me, he is afraid, afraid of a general engagement, his hour is at hand. Mark my words. But tell me, about him, what kind of man is he? asked Prince André. He is a man in a grey overcoat, very anxious for me to address him as Your Majesty, and very much affronted because I gave him no title at all. That's the kind of a man he is, and that's all I can say, replied Dolgorukov, looking at Bilibin with a smile. In spite of my perfect confidence in old Kutuzov, he went on to say, we should all be in a fine state if we kept on waiting for something to happen, and thereby giving him the chance to outflank us, or play some trick upon us, now that he's right in our hands, evidently. No, it's not a good thing to forget Suvorov and his rule. It's a better policy to attack than to be attacked. I assure you, in war the energy of young men often points out the way more wisely than all the experience of old tacticians. But in what position are we going to attack him? I was at the advance post today, and it is impossible to make out where his main force is stationed, said Prince Andrei. 
he was anxious to explain to Dolgorukov a plan of attack of his own that he had devised. "'Oh, it's of absolutely no consequence,' replied Dolgorukov, hastily getting up and spreading a map on the table. "'All contingencies are foreseen. If he's posted at Brun, and Prince Dolgorukov rapidly and not very clearly unfolded Weirother's plan for a flank movement.' Prince Andrei hastened to raise objections and to expound his own plan. Perhaps it was fully as good as Weirother's, but it had one serious fault, that Weirother's had been approved instead. As soon as Prince Andrei began to point out the disadvantages of Weirother's and the excellencies of his own plan, Prince Dolgorukov ceased listening to him and looked absently not at the map, but at Prince Andrei's face. Well, there is to be a council of war this evening at Kutuzov's, there you will have a chance to deliver your views, said Dolgorukov. I certainly shall, said Prince Andrei, pushing the map aside. And what are you struggling over, gentlemen? asked Bilibin, who until now had been listening to their discussion with a gay smile, and had at last made up his mind to get some sport out of it. Whether we have a victory or a defeat tomorrow, the glory of the Russian arms is assured. Except our Kutuzov, there isn't a single Russian division commander— the heads are Herr General Wimpfen, Le Comte de Lagraine, Le Prince de Liechtenstein, Le Prince de Hohenlohe at Einfin Pretz, Pretz, and all the rest of the alphabet, like all Polish names. Hush, Mouvez Lanka, said Dogorokov. It isn't so, for here are two others, Russians, Milorodovich and Dokhtarov, and we might count Count Erekcheyev as a third, but he has weak nerves. "'Well, I think Mikhail Ilyaronovitch must have come out,' said Prince Andrei. "'I wish you all happiness and success, gentlemen,' he added, and after shaking hands with Dolgorokov and Bilibin, went in search of Kutuzov. On the way back to their quarters, Prince Andrei could not refrain from asking Kutuzov, who sat in moody silence beside him, what he thought of the approaching engagement. Kutuzov looked sternly at his adjutant, and after a moment of silence replied, "'I think that the battle will be lost.' and so I told Count Tolstoy, and begged him to repeat it to the sovereign. And what do you think was the answer he gave me? Ah, my dear general, rice and cutlets occupy me. You attend to the affairs of war. Yes, that's the way they answer me. End of chapter 11